read this morning's sermon text, and you can turn your Bibles to the New Testament book of 1 Timothy. Chapter 6 is where we find ourselves this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby, even in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 993. This is a unique day in our church's life, bringing in just a few moments' time the ordaining and installing of men to serve in the gospel ministry. I want to turn our attention today to verse 11 through 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's a passage that is perhaps the clearest charge, an apostolic charge to gospel ministers that you can find in God's word. And I trust that as I read it, students, you'll understand why we turn to this passage on this unique day. So let me read verse 11 through 16 and pray then for our time and we'll begin together. So listen now as God does speak to you through his perfect word. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The grass withers and the flower Falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do ask on this unique day in your ministry to us that you would speak to us afresh in power and fullness as we want to respond to the word of your Son, increasing always in conformity to Christ, that you might be glorified in our lives individually in this church collectively. And so let us hear with meekness, let us hear with prayerfulness. Help me to speak as you say I must, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's, it's true if you've been with us for the last couple of years here at Redeemer, it's somewhat of now almost an annual tradition on the first Sunday of February each year that we take a break from our ongoing series of expositions, and we consider a text in God's Word that has a direct application to leadership in the church, uh, to the gospel ministry, and we tend to do that on the first Sunday of February each year for two reasons, one of which is, like we're doing today, just a week or two after our annual congregational meeting at the end of January, it's quite normal for us to have men that are going to be ordained and installed or just installed to serve as elders or deacons. And so it's right and necessary for us to give a particular attention to what God requires of of leaders in the church. But it's also true that you might know, certainly those of you who are members, I trust you know this, that February here at Redeemer, all throughout the month of February each year, we, we collect nominations 
for men who might serve in the future as elders or deacons. Those names are then taken by the elders, considered and evaluated, and those men are potentially put into office or training for this year. And so each year what I like to do, even if we wouldn't have an ordination installation, is to consider specifically what God says must be true about leaders in his church, leaders that you might be considering to nominate leaders that you might be prayerfully evaluating to potentially nominate. And throughout my ministry, I've made, I try to make a weekly practice. It's not always the case that it's every week. A weekly practice of of reading old ordination sermons that were given to pastors in centuries past. If you've ever read such sermons before, you you know that they often kind of uh, come with, of course, unique application to the gospel ministry, but at the same time, uh, a very direct and and bold exhortation to those who are going to serve in the church. Earlier this week, I was reading one and came to the fourth of his five final exhortations, and it very much has a tie to 1 Timothy chapter 6. He said, study... Universal holiness of life. Your whole usefulness depends on this. Now speaking of course to preachers, but this would apply no doubt to every ordained leader in the church. He says your sermon on the Sabbath lasts only an hour or two. You should be grateful. You never get two hours here at Redeemer. But in comparison to that one sermon, your life preaches all the week. Remember, ministers are standard bearers. Satan aims his fiery darts at them. If he can only make you a covetous minister, we'll see some of those in just a minute. Lovers of pleasure, lovers of praise, lovers of good eating, we'll see some of those in just a minute too. Then he has ruined your ministry forever. Ah, let him preach on 50 years and he will never do me, Satan says, any harm whatsoever. And so we want to give our attention this morning to what God requires of his men in the ministry, trusting that reverently we might be able to say that they do much harm to the kingdom of Satan as they fight the good fight of the faith and they bring much help to the cause of Christ and the extension of his kingdom as the local ministry expands and and grows. Because we all know intuitively, don't we, that, that leaders make the difference in Pretty much every organization. Why is it that a home is the way it is, but because of the parents? Why is it so often that a business is the way that it is? Because of the boss, the sports team, the way that it is. Because of the coach, the classroom, the way that it is. Because of the teacher, the church, the way that it is. For good and bad, because of the leaders. And what you need to know that the New Testament gives us are three letters that we refer to as the pastoral epistles. So these letters that Paul wrote to two particular pastors, two letters to Timothy and one to Titus. And they're very short. You you could actually read them in a relatively brief sitting this afternoon. And if you did so, what, what you would discover is that the apostolic model for churches growing in a godly way It has nothing to do with marketing, has nothing to do with missions, has nothing to do with money, has nothing to do with music. It has everything to do with the men God intends to shepherd that congregation. Because what the Bible tells us over and over is that the health of the church in every way depends on the health of its leaders. The faithfulness of the church in every way depends on the faithfulness of her leaders. That that under God and outside the spirit-filled, prayerful preaching of God's word, nothing is more vital 
to a church's faithfulness than faithful leaders. So we want to know today, what does God require that leaders would be faithful? And 1 Timothy chapter 6 is much to tell us about that. It has, of course, an immediate reference this morning to the five men that in just a moment will stand up here and we'll set apart for the work of the ministry. Of course, it has an immediate reference too, doesn't it, for those men that are already installed as elders and deacons here in the church. It has additionally immediate reference to all of you as a congregation here at Redeemer because this is the kind of leader that God wants in his church. So therefore, the kind of leader, the kind of man that you might nominate to serve as elder or deacon. But it's got a much more universal application outside of the gospel ministry itself because what the pastorals make clear to us is that God intends, he says this almost explicitly in 1 Timothy 4.12, that God intends for leaders, not just to set an example, said differently with the picture of the original, to be the mold around which the congregation's life in Christ finds its shape. So it's true, therefore, isn't it why? Children often talk, speak, act, imitate, reflect their parents. The same will be true in any local church, that church members often talk, speak, act, reflect, so on and so forth. Ordinary church leaders, and we want to know what God requires of church leaders. We want to know this principle of of godliness that belongs in its primary sense. Because 16 times in the New Testament, it uses the word godliness. Ten of those 16 times show up in 1 Timothy which tells us the preeminent qualification for those who serve in the church is godliness. But I want to expand it out a little bit today along the way with our verses because I want to show you this theme that we find in verse 11 through 16 of the qualities of godliness needed in gospel ministry. That's what we're trying to look at. Applying it, of course, to leaders in this church. Children, applying it to your own life as you're following the Lord Jesus Christ. Students, as you're wanting to walk with God, this is what it looks like. The qualities of godliness that God desires and all of his people. So we'll notice in verse 11 through 14, commands for the man of God. Maybe you notice that as I read the passage, just command after command after command. And then we'll notice in verse 15 and 16, truths about the majesty of God. So commands for the man of God leading to truths about the majesty of God. Before you get to the commands though, let's set something of the context if you don't know much about 1 Timothy If you just kind of glance back to chapter 1, you'll see Paul tell us right from the outset that he told Timothy, this young pastor, probably in his early 30s, that he was supposed to stay in Ephesus and pastor Christ's church there. And he was there to charge, verse 3 and 4 tell us, certain people not to teach any different doctrine, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So he's, he's left there to proclaim the truth, to protect the truth, in every way war against those false teachers that had infiltrated the Ephesian congregation. And he's going to say later on at the end of chapter 3 that, well, who knows, Timothy, I might delay in coming to you. And in case I do, I'm writing all of these things so that you know how one ought to behave in the household of God. What, what, what is the church supposed to look like in an ordinary sense, in its ordinary health? And so he gives all of these instructions and all of these exhortations. And what he says in verse 5 of chapter 1 is that the aim of our charge as ministers, as church leaders, the aim of our charge is love. I want to keep that in the back of your mind because soon we're going to get to our text and its middle part that brings a book in, a further elaboration, if you will, to, to that charge that belongs to healthy church leaders. But now, let's see, commands for 
the man of God. Notice verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Uh, students, you don't have to be, do you, an expert in grammar to understand he's making a contrast here. But as for you, flee these things. So what's the contrast? Well, if you, again, read through this letter in one sitting, it wouldn't take very long, you'll see the degree to which Paul is often saying, Timothy, you are to live differently than these false teachers. You're to teach differently than these false teachers. And if you just glance up to verse 3 through 10 of chapter 6, uh, what, what he's told us and told Timothy there is that the false teachers are known for covetousness, the false teachers are known for quarreling, the false teachers are known for greediness, they have this love of money. And so in a summary way, you can say, uh, Timothy, you're not to be a man of gold, you're to be a man of God in your witness. And that language, O man of God, it actually is quite a technical title in Scripture. It's used in the Old Testament to ordinarily refer to these mighty men like Moses and Elijah and Samuel and David, these people designated to to serve God's people in a particular way. And no doubt Timothy has been designated to serve God's people in a particular way there in Ephesus. And he, uh, opposed to the false teachers, is to flee these things, covetousness, greediness, idolatry, immorality, so on. And so forth. I got a text sometime last year, not long after, after we had moved to our new house, and Emily said, well, we killed the first snake. And I came home later in the afternoon, and the kids quickly surrounded me. Daddy, 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 we, we killed a, a copperhead today. And as the story came out, Knox, who was one of the three eyewitnesses, uh, Knox told the story best. He said, you know, Dad, uh, Sarah and Boston and I were, were playing in the backyard, and, and Boston said, oh, look at this baby snake. Now, Emily had been training the kids to be able to recognize what's a good snake and a bad snake. You might be like me and think there's no such thing as a good snake. You know, they're just, <laughs> it's a snake. Well, Knox says, it's a copperhead. And he said, Dad, I shouted, quick, run for your lives! <laughs> and we ran and... And told Mamba, and then she came out and crushed the serpent's head. And that that component of fleeing for your life is what Timothy is to do spiritually here. Run for your life, spiritually speaking, is what Paul is saying. Uh, These marks of sin that so often even infiltrate ministers and leaders. You're to run from them, he says. But it's not always sufficient Practically, actually, it's never sufficient to just run from something. You have to run to something. Run from sin. And what he's going to say is you you run towards sanctification. Because you see verse 11, the next command is pursue. It's this language that is actually quite aggressive in the original. It it paints the picture of a hunter chasing down his, his object. And you'll see he rattles off in the rest of verse 11, six characteristics of holiness. That's to mark God's leaders in the church. Kids, do you know what these are? Pursue righteousness. Ordinarily in Scripture, righteousness is a matter of justice and truthfulness. It tends to have a horizontal reality to it. As you obey God's law and love your neighbor, you're walking in righteousness. Also pursue godliness, he says. It's not just the horizontal reality that must be faithful. It's the vertical reality that must be faithful. You're increasingly imitating God and being conformed to the image of Christ. You must pursue faith, he says, which is trusting in God. You must pursue love, which is that holy affection that is singular among Christians as they love God and 
love their neighbors as themselves. You see, the, the fifth one is pursue steadfastness. Uh, your translation might read patience there, but steadfastness, I think, is a better uh, translation. It talks about this endurance in difficult circumstances. And I trust that many of you know how the Christian life can often seem like little more than endurance in difficult circumstances, which leads to the sixth one, pursue gentleness, which is really speaking about patience towards your opponents. Now, often Timothy is hearing from Paul that he is to relate to these opponents, these false teachers that are there at Ephesus in a very particular way, and the particular way is that path of, of, of gentleness. Uh, you're not to, to lash out at them in your pride-filled response and perhaps even just response to their error, but as he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, in your gentleness, correct them, and perhaps God may change their minds along the way. You see the famous commands continue. Verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. He's already told Timothy at the end of chapter 1, he says, wage the good warfare. And they sound almost like redundant commands. Until you realize that chapter 1 is speaking about military image, imagery, and here in chapter 6 is actually athletic imagery, the athletic arena. You could translate as agonize, the good agony, or contest, the good contest. It's got, again, that idea of perseverance is to belong to the Christian life, and endurance is to belong to the Christian ministry in the same way that any ordinary Christian knows the Christian life is so much about endurance. Isn't it true that all of you that have served in churches in various ways know that even service and leadership in the church is so often little more than endurance and perseverance and what God requires. It reminds me of an old word from an old pastor who, when speaking about perseverance, said it was by perseverance that the snail reached the ark. We're always to be persevering and enduring. But, but you want to make sure that you understand verse 12 rightly because we got some important qualifiers here, don't we? Fight the good fight. Seemingly telling us there's a kind of fight that ministers and leaders can fight that's not the right fight. The noble fight. The good fight. Or we're not just looking for, for men who are fighters, but men who fight for the right thing. The good thing. Well, what is that? Well, you'll see, depending on your translation, certainly if you have an ESV in front of you, it has the definite article there, which is there. Fight the good fight of the faith. This collective understanding of sound doctrine. If you just glance up to verse 10 at the end, the false teachers, through their love of money, have wandered away from the faith. And now Timothy's meant to fight the good fight of that very faith. And is preaching the truth and is pastoring people towards the truth. And so therefore, what we need, of course, in the church are men who are fighters. You may know enough of the pastoral epistles to know that Timothy himself didn't seem to be very keen on fighting uh, we're told in multiple places, Paul's alluding to or commanding Timothy out of his timid personality, exhorting him to, to strength and uh, persistence in this battle for the truth. But what we need are, are leaders who, who fight earnestly, steadfastly. There's an incredible urgency that belongs to all of these commands, which is even further amplified. Notice verse 12 as it continues. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called uh, that word take hold, it actually can communicate grabbing with violence. It's the same word that's actually used in Matthew chapter 14. If you remember the story, Jesus is walking on the water and Peter says, well, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come out and walk on the water. And Jesus says, well, come on, Peter. 
Peter begins to walk on the water and then he starts to notice what he's actually doing and what does he begin to do but slip down into the water and he says, Lord, save me. And it's in that moment the text tells us that Jesus reached out and laid hold of, of Peter's hand. He took hold of Peter's life and in the same way Timothy is here exhorted to take hold of eternal life, that to which he's been called in, in Jesus Christ. Of course, he has it already, he possesses it, but He's telling Timothy, you can increase in your grasp of its goodness, your grasp of its blessedness, this eternal life that belongs in Jesus Christ. And I wonder if you're in here today and you wouldn't say that you're a Christian. This is the command to you also, isn't it? Take hold of the eternal life that you're called to even now. That life is found in Christ and Christ alone Take hold of the eternal life. Notice the verse continues, to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We don't know if that was you know, maybe a confession before the Council of Elders, like a presbytery as it would have been called back then, or, or perhaps it was just an ordinary congregation of church members. Whatever it was that Timothy had made this public profession that he knew about and everyone else there in Ephesus knew about and uh, certainly by way of implication when it comes to leaders in this church, we need men who are publicly known as, as Christians by their confession. Uh, I suppose we, many of us, I can find unique conviction on this point. If you've had children throughout the years, perhaps some now, and you find yourself on the weekend situated on a sideline of some athletic event, and you hear parents berating referees and behaving in ways that are altogether frustrating and then you find out after that game oh so and so is a, a church member I would have never have known that by anything they just said or even worse and I know far too many you mean to tell me he's a pastor of a church too known publicly for their confession of Jesus Christ and what Paul is doing he's going to move Timothy's attention to that confession made in the presence of earthly witnesses to a charge now made in the presence of heavenly witnesses. You see verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. So that's the solemn authoritative declaration. Do you see it? Timothy, I charge you in the presence of all that is heavenly, in the presence of all that is holy, keep the commandment pure, free from Reproach. Now, uh, you should ask there of verse 14, what's the commandment? Because he doesn't tell us, does he? Keep the commandment, Timothy. So maybe it's the list of commands that have preceded this verse. Uh, some think that it maybe is just kind of Paul's way of summarizing all of the commands that he's made throughout the letter. Uh, I think actually because of the nature of the charge being what's urging this command, it's going back to just simply what he's already said in chapter 1, that, that, that this command is his commission as a minister of Jesus Christ, that you are to keep that commandment unstained and, and free from reproach as you're preaching the gospel, as you're ministering Jesus Christ, as you're leading God's people ever onward towards their heavenly home. You're, you're to lead them in such a way that you're keeping the commandment pure. And surely that has to be true because don't we know many times Every year, we have these stories, don't we, of, of leaders, ordained servants in the church falling into sin, disqualifying themselves. And if you've ever been in a situation like that, I know some of you have, 
you, you, you begin to have to counsel church members because they think that now the ministry itself is stained because of what happened. And Paul is telling Timothy, don't ever do that. Walk with such keeping in step with the spirit realities that you yourselves are showing forth these commands that belong to the man of God. And you see, of course, the commands now lead to truths about the majesty of God. J.I. Packer once said that theology is at its healthiest when it issues forth in singing. That's a good way of thinking about it. Uh, theology, rightly understood, always leads to doxology, that proclamations about who God is ought to always lead us ultimately to praise who God is. And you might know Paul's writings in the New Testament well enough to know that it's very common that only a few paragraphs will pass in his letter before he just kind of breaks out in this spontaneous doxology. Sometimes it's quite clear why he's doing that. Other times, maybe it's not as clear. Certainly here, it's quite obvious as he's meditating on the second coming of Jesus Christ. You notice the end of verse 14 and verse 15, which God will display at the proper time. He now gives us, depending on how you count it, at least seven different truths about who God is. I wonder if someone was to come to you today and say, well, rattle off a doxology of seven different truths of who God is. You know, what would you say? You'd probably say a lot of true things, wouldn't you? But I actually think in our context, a number of things that he mentions here are probably quite far back in our mind as prominent in who God is. And so let's relearn them, or perhaps learn them for the first time. You'll see that his reign is universal. Uh, we're told that he is the blessed and only sovereign Old translations might say he's the only potentate. He's the, he's the only one that's in charge. Children is what that means. You look out on the world today and you do see kings and queens. You do see presidents and prime ministers. But there is only one potentate in charge of every nation and every people group. It's not just a universal reign. You see it's an invincible reign. He alone is the king of kings and the lord of lords. There's only one capital K king. There's only one capital L lord in all of, of human history. It's always been that way. It will always only be that way. You see also we're told that he is immortal. Verse 16, who alone has immortality. What good news that is to people who are altogether mortal. That the sting and stain of death has no power on this God. He's beyond time. He alone can give life, even as the previous text has told us in verse 13, that he gives life to all things because he is immortal. He's also, notice as the text continues, unapproachable. He dwells in unapproachable light. Uh, you're meant to have these stories of God's blinding purity and in blinding holiness that you'll find often in the Old Testament. Certain ways, even when Jesus is transfigured before the disciples, he's, he's unapproachable in his purity. That's who God is. And that, if immortality is good news, his unapproachable nature is very bad news, isn't it? Because people like you and me were stained deeply with dark sin. At, uh, we, we want to approach him. We need to approach him because he alone has eternal life, but we can't approach him such as his purity and holiness. But the good news, isn't it, of Jesus Christ is that he has taken away the sin. He's washed away our iniquity. All of those black marks, those blots and blemishes that belong to every single one of your hearts. If you look to him in faith, he's taken it away. He's clothed you in a perfectly pure garment of white righteousness. And now you might enter in and see the king in his beauty, he who dwells in unapproachable light. And it often 
also speaks about his invisibility. You see, no one has ever seen or can see. Uh, you, you read off lists of attributes and points like this, and uh, you ought to think like Moses does in Exodus chapter 15 after singing the song of redemption when God brought his people out of bondage and slavery. He says, who is like God among all the gods of this world? So, of course, the only right response, the end of our text, praise and power to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So what does a church need in its leaders? Men who heed the warning and words about holiness, who have made a good confession in the presence of witnesses, men known for their urgent, genuine, spontaneous worship of the great God, qualities of godliness that belong to the gospel ministry. I have this series of brief biographies in my office, and each one of them ends with the exact same epilogue. It is an epilogue that kind of reaches this crescendo-like moment in a long block quote from Charles Spurgeon. It's a quote that originally came in an 1874 sermon that that English preacher preached that was called The Power of the Risen Christ. And somewhere towards the back half of the sermon, Spurgeon asked the question, how few are our apostolic men, is what he said. Because as he was looking out over the landscape of Christianity and the English-speaking world at the time, he, he was saying that it's not just true that the prestige of gospel ministry has decreased, it's, it's the power of gospel ministry seems to have decreased as well as so many congregations and churches were quite unfamiliar with the, the sovereign, steadfast work of the Spirit and souls and, and hearts. And so he began to burst forth in a way that often only Spurgeon can, saying, quote, We want again Luther's, Calvin's, Bunyan's, and Whitfield's, men fit to mark eras, whose names breathe terror into our foemen's ears. We have dire need of such. And I love that quote, but I wonder if I don't like that quote. There's only one John Bunyan, George Whitfield, John Calvin, Martin Luther. But what, what I would want to modify that is saying, we want again Timothys, ordinary ministers that struggle in ordinary ways, but have an extraordinary devotion to who God is. That's why you might know that Philippians tells us, Paul tells us that he has no one like Timothy, such as his humble service for the cause of Jesus Christ. So yes, as Spurgeon continues, when will they come to us? They are gifts of Jesus Christ to the church, and they will come in due time. And as we understand God's providence, we believe that even this day that God has provided them in his due time, and we want more of them. We want men who are like this portrait of godliness in 1 Timothy 6. So as we begin to close, let me give you three final exhortations and considerations about the nature of a healthy minister. We, of course, see, number one, he has noticeable piety. Noticeable piety. How the old divines would, would speak about pastoral ministry and elders in the right way saying that they are ordinary men with more than ordinary share of holiness. If they're meant to be models, they must have it. Even our book of church order in our denomination says they must have exemplary, more than unusual, more than usual, I should say, piety and godliness. Paul's going to hear from Timothy in his second letter, if you don't pursue personal holiness, 
You aren't useful to the Lord. What then must you think about when you nominate men for ministry? It's not ones that you, you think are walking in these paths of godliness, but you know through many years and multiple observations that they have manifested these spiritual fruits, gentleness, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, number one, noticeable piety, number two, he submits to God's sovereignty. He submits to God's sovereignty. Uh, Paul is underscoring it, isn't he? If you look again at verse 13, that God alone gives life to all things. His doxology begins, he's the blessed and, and only sovereign. So submission to God's sovereignty and Leaders means, of course, submission to his word, submission to his will, submission to his spirit, submission to his law, submission to his truth. But oftentimes in, in ministry, it's submission to his providence. Uh, when we think about men for the ministry, we, we pay not only attention to how they act. Uh, we pay attention to how they react when difficulty comes. How they react when something doesn't go their way. Do they still continue to manifest those fruits of godliness required? There's noticeable piety. There's submission to God's sovereignty. And finally, there's ministry in view of eternity. He serves in view of eternity. You see that, don't you, at the end of verse 15. How long is Timothy supposed to keep the commandment unstained? Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we so desperately need, don't we, in our churches, are men who are so situated and fixated on the realities of heaven that they do much earthly good. That the present circumstances don't swallow up that which is coming in all of eternity. But instead, there's this meditation and there's this resting on the reality of of what's going to come in everlasting glory and beauty that that fixation informs and shapes how we minister in the present situation. Men like old Richard Baxter Know what it means to say, I came and ministered as a dying man to dying people. These are the kind of men that we need. These are the kind of members that we want to all be. Hearing and heeding the warnings and the words about holiness. Giving witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Worshiping our great God because there's no one like him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we want to always be growing in the humility and the holiness that you require of your people. As this day we come to ordain men to the ministry, we do pray that you would fill them ever anew and afresh with the power of your spirit that they might walk in obedience to all of these commands. That we ourselves might see models of godliness in our own life and always increase in the holiness of Jesus Christ. This, might, this place might shine with peculiar power and the beauty of your Son, the very one in which we pray these things. Amen.